recover his spirits, and was setting to work writing a novel because he was not yet strong enough to do serious mental work. But I started out to recall what it was like to set oneself up to be a writer in the Midwest during the thirties, for I thought of myself as a Midwesterner and not as a Jew. I am often described as a Jewish writer, in much the same way one might be called a Samoan astronomer or an Eskimo cellist, or a Zulu Gainsborough expert. There is some oddity about it. I am a Jew, and I have written some books. I have tried to fit my soul into the Jewish writer category, but it does not feel comfortably accommodated there. I wonder now and then whether Philip Roth and Bernard Malamud and I have not become the Hart Schaffner and Marx of our trade— We have made it in the field of culture, as Bernard Baruch made it on a park bench, as Polly Adler made it in prostitution, as Tugun Cohen, the personal bodyguard of Sun Yat-sen, made it in China. My joke is not broad enough to cover the contempt, I feel, for the opportunists, wise guys and career types who impose such labels and trade upon them. In a century so disastrous to Jews— One hesitates to criticize those who believe they are making the world safer by publicizing Jewish achievements. I myself doubt that this publicity is effective. I did not go to the public library to read the Talmud, but the novels and poems of Sherwood Anderson, Theodore Dreiser, Edgar Lee Masters, and Vachel Lindsay. These were people who had resisted the material weight of American society, and who proved, what was not immediately obvious, that the life lived in great manufacturing, shipping, and banking centers with their slaughter stink, their great slums, prisons, hospitals, and schools, was also a human life. It appeared to me that this one thing, so intimately known, that not only nerves, senses, mind, but also my very bones wanted to put it into words, might contain elements that not even Dreiser, whom I admired most, had yet reached. I felt that I was born to be a performing and interpretive creature, that I was meant to take part in a peculiar, exalted game. For there are good grounds to consider this, together with other forms of civilized behavior and ceremony, a game. At its noblest, this game is played, under discipline, before God himself. So Plato said, and others as well. The game can be an offering, a celebration— an act of praise, an acknowledgment also of one's weaknesses and limitations. I couldn't have put it in this manner then. All that appeared was a blind, obstinate impulse, expressing itself in bursts of foolishness. I loved great things. I thought I had a right to think of that exalted game. I was also extremely proud, ornery, and stupid. I was, in 1937, a very young married man who had quickly lost his first job and who lived with his in-laws. His affectionate, loyal, and pretty wife insisted that he must be given a chance to write something. Having anyone pay attention to my writing wasn't a real possibility. I am as often bemused as amused at the attention my books have received. Neglect would have been frightful, but attention has its disadvantages. The career of a critic— when I am feeling mean about it, I sometimes compare to that of a deaf man who tunes pianos. In a more benevolent mood, I agree with my late father that people must be encouraged to make as honest a living as they can. 
For this reason, I don't object to becoming a topic. When I visited Japan, I saw that there were prayer and fortune-telling papers sold for a penny at each temple. The buyers rolled up these long strips of paper and tied them by threads to bushes and low trees. From the twigs there dangled hundreds of tightly furled papers. I sometimes compare myself to one of these temple trees. So I sat at a bridge table in a back bedroom of the apartment, while all rational, serious, dutiful people were at their jobs, or trying to find jobs, writing something. My table faced three cement steps that rose from the cellar into the brick gloom of a passageway. Only my mother-in-law was at home. A widow then in her seventies, she wore a heavy white braid down her back. She had been a modern woman and a socialist and suffragette in the old country. She was attractive in a fragile, steely way. You felt Sophie's strength of will in all things.